the weekend and plenty from your day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. So I saw Red and I rang up the NTA. Yeah. The poor lady who answered. I said, hello, can I speak to your CEO? She's like, sorry. Yeah, Anne Graham, please. She's like, oh, you, she won't come on the phone. I said, why not? Who are you? I said, who are you? I'm the reception. I'm the receptionist. I said, well, I'm the Egypt that tries to avail of your service, but it's never there. What do you like to be referred to as? Um, a sweet nerd, sweet geeks, sweet persons, sweet yeah, spot? a sweet counter in my spare time. A sweet counter, yeah, a sweet your sweet counter. counter. The power went off at... Um, 10 o'clock and didn't come back on again until 5 in the afternoon. It was on Wednesday. Which was Baltic. And we'll start on the live line and it's looking like a Christmas in hospital for Stephanie and her son Kieran. Kieran suffers with cystic fibrosis and is one of 35 children waiting to receive the drug Caftrio. Uh, Stephanie, good afternoon, Stephanie. Hey Joe, how are you? Um, you've been on with us before, but uh, and it's about uh, Calf Trio and your son Kieran. He's one of the thirty-five waiting. For, well, he's not waiting on Calf Trio, Calf Trio because Calf Trio was available. Calf Trio has been passed, but Calf Trio has been validated um, as being uh, uh, extraordinarily useful, and it's in it's in use for a significant number of people in Ireland at the moment with cystic fibrosis and it's made such a difference. But there's a row between the government and the manufacturer over extending the drug, which everyone agrees is totally uh, extendable. There's no issues to this group. It's a row about money. And uh, you just want to bring us up to date on what's happening on Kieran, Stephanie. I do, yeah. Um, Kieran. so I was talking to you there last week, Joe, and, and Kieran had been on antibiotics for four or five weeks. Yeah. Just struggling to shake this cough. So we came up on Tuesday morning and he's been admitted to hospital. So we've been in hospital now since Tuesday. Oh, um, God. He's doing well. He's, he's such a little trooper. He's just the best. He just does everything that's expected of him. Because one of, just, one of the arguments that you were making, Stephanie, and other parents were making, and by the way, we had a lot of people who were on who were yeah. on Calf Trio, and they were miraculous. It's, well, that's the point. I I've never, I've never heard yeah. or read no. or listened to stories where a drug uh, made such a difference so quickly. Now, maybe that's why it's. I presume that's why it's so expensive. Yeah, and I but, suppose um, from listening to all them stories, Joe, I'm in no doubt that we wouldn't be in this situation if Karen had got Calf Trio in March when we were expecting them to get it. And that's kind of just the hardest part to take, really. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be missing out on our build-up to Christmas. Two other kids at home that I'm missing like crazy. Yeah. Um, and Kieran is as well. And yeah. it's very tough. It's very tough, especially this time of year. Christmas is so special in our house. And, um, and uh, how, how... When did you realise Kieran would have to go into hospital, Stephanie? Well, he just... His cough was quite bad over the weekend. So he just, yeah. when he gets a bad cough, he's just anytime he's doing anything, jumping or running or playing with his brother and sister, you know, he starts coughing. So my biggest worry if I left it for another week is we'd end up in here for Christmas because yeah. I kind of knew the fact that he'd had so many oral antibiotics and I hadn't cleared it that this is the route we were going to end up oh. going. And yeah. is, is the treatment, is it any way easing his cough, Stephanie? He's, he does physio every day. He does physio twice yeah. a day. They're brilliant here in the hospital. In fairness, it's, it's fun. He enjoys it because it's bouncing on a trampoline and playing football yeah, here in the little room we're in. But it's um, it hasn't shifted yet now. He's yeah. still struggling to get it off his chest. With CF, the mucus is very thick. Yeah. 
and that's, hard to move. And as we heard last week, on the first day, 24, 36 hours of Cath Trio, yeah. the mucus begins to shift. Absolutely. The yeah, mucus that's... begins to shift, which is incredible. Yeah. And at, 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 on the one hand, I was going to say it's awful uh, because any of us with children have gone through bad coughs. But it's one of the most distressing things to listen to because you feel so powerless. But it's most, it's, any of us have had a cough. It's one of the most distressing things to go through. And now, uh, uh, young Kieran is in, away from his brothers and sisters, the week coming up to Christmas. And this could all, and he's in a hospital, which there's a cost to as well. Yeah, but, uh, 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 knowing the difference between the, the cost of everything and the value of things, mm-hmm. that, um, that's there's a significant cost, and he should be, he should be getting um he should be getting the the best care. And I know he is up up in up in Cromwell uh, yeah. CHI yeah. as it's now called Children's Hospital Ireland. But um, is there anyone we've we've we within the space of the next uh, twenty four hours we'll have two Tisha, we'll have uh, Michal yeah. Martin finishing and uh, Leo Varadkar starting, we'll have two tarnishes versa visa. Is there any way they could? Say to the. Well, I suppose it's just we're trying it, to get it out there as much as we can, and thanks to you, Joe, you're getting it out there even, as much as we can. Even, even pick up a phone and ring, ring yeah. Boston, Massachusetts. But anyway, Stephanie, I wish mm. you well. And Joe spoke to young Kieran. Hello. Hiya, Kieran. Won't you, won't you look after yourself? Are you okay in hospital? Are you, are you managing okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I am. And you, your, your mommy loves you. You know that. Yeah, I do. Uh, and you the two at home love you as well. And they're yeah. all they're all dying to get you home. Did you write yeah. to did you write to Santa Kieran? Yeah. And what did you do you want to tell me what you asked for? Okay. What did you what did you ask for? I asked for a soccer ball. Yeah, great. And I asked for uh, soccer clothes for soccer. Good lad. A surprise. Um, it, it's this wrestling game. It's called Battlegrounds. Oh, great. I know it. Battlegrounds. Okay. I hope you get that. And I, I, I want to, I just want to say goodbye to your mommy. Give her a big, okay. give her a big hug, Kieran. We yeah. all miss you. You'll be home soon. You'll be home soon. Um, Stephanie, Stephanie, I know what you want for Christmas is calf, yeah. it's calf trio, calf trio, calf trio. Absolutely. It is available, available. It's there. Give it to those children. Stephanie and Kieran talking to Joe in the afternoon. And in the morning, with a new documentary to air on TG Cahar, Pora Cusack was talking about the life and times of his father, the legendary actor Cyril Cusack, with Oliver Callan. Now, on Christmas Day, TG Cahar are showing a new documentary about one of Ireland's greatest ever actors, Cyril Cusack. It's called Cyril Cusack, Lor Nostalgia, or Cyril Cusack, Centre Stage. And uh, all of Cyril's children are interviewed extensively. It's a very uh, honest uh, programme. It covers his entire astounding career on stage and screen, which goes from 1918 all the way to 1990, into the 90s. And I'm joined on the line from Cork now by Cyril's youngest son, Pork Cusack. He's a renowned theatre producer himself. Good morning to you, Pork. Good morning, Oliver. How are you? Not so bad at all. I love this documentary. I saw it last night and I was brought back into some of the great uh, movies and great performances by your dad. And uh, I'd like to start at the, at the very beginning of, of his life, I suppose. He had an unusual childhood, Pork, didn't he? Well, he did. I mean, <clears throat> he he was born in South Africa. Um, his dad was in the Mounted Police there, uh, and his his mum was uh, an actress, a kind of music hall actress. Um, and 
that marriage failed after about five or six years. So the young Cyril and his mum came to initially England and then moved to Ireland with uh, Alice, his mum's uh, new partner, Brethany O'Rourke, an actor. And they set up uh, a touring company, an acting touring company, traveling from um, village to village, town to town, putting on plays, um, different plays every week in different towns. And Cyril traveled with them and had to go to the local school, knock on the door and hope that he could join the class for a week. But of course, um, you know, that influence of, of being surrounded by actors obviously um, had a huge impact on him. Um, you know, we often wonder, nature or nurture, you know, what makes us what we are. Mm. And, um, you know, Brethany wasn't his dad, but obviously had a huge influence on him. And Brethany O'Rourke was actually a very successful film actor, and we've seen some of his films, and we just see some of, of Dad's mannerisms really? in him. Really? So I think that, you know, that was a huge influence. And... Um, the, the documentary just captures a little bit of that kind of extraordinary start to his life. And he ha- he basically had those kind of two dads, didn't he? And uh, he was asked about it. I think Anthony Clare was chatting to him about it. And he he had kind of a wry answer. Let's have a little uh, a little listen. This is a clip from the documentary that Cyril Cusack right, talking yeah. about his father. Uh, has sometimes been in doubt as to whether I was a legitimate from my father or an illegitimate from my, from the from Refne O'Rourke. Because it's been found, he still he still can be seen on film, that uh, many of my idiosyncrasies are shared with him. You're amused by that. You haven't the faintest idea of whether it's true or false. Oh, I have. You I have. have. Yes, the faintest idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which way? Oh, I'm I'm pretty certain that I was, I was my father's yeah. son. Shall yes. I put it like yes. that? <laughs> There's a glint of mischief there, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely, I and mean, he lo- he loved to. <laughs> add a little intrigue into whatever yes. story he told. Yeah. That was part and parcel of him, with a glint in his eye. What a gorgeous voice, and obviously the theatrical um, um, accent is coming through there, but it does change over the years, because he's an actor after all. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes when I go out with him for a drink, and we'd meet somebody in the pub, and they would be from Kerry, and within three or four minutes, my dad had a strong Kerry accent. He was sort of chameleon-like with, okay. with uh, the old chat. I can, I can uh, empathise with that, I could say. Um, he, uh, he went to study law, but he was always drawn back into the acting world. It's amazing. And uh, your brother-in-law, who's in the documentary, well, Jeremy Irons, who's married to Sinead Cusack, um, he That's says right. that he could have... Uh, Cyril would have been the great one of the great actors and a leading man. He was up there. He was up there with Gilgood, Olivier. But there was an incident on the West End, which I didn't know about until this documentary. Tell us about that. That's right. I think it was in the kind of early forties, and um, <clears throat> I mean, he was high, highly respected. He got cast in this play, The Doctor's Dilemma, op- opposite Vivian Lee, who was just a major megastar, um, world star. She just made Gone with the Wind. Um, and uh, he was terrific in it, and they got great reviews. And then there was, uh, I think it was St. Patrick's Day, and there was some Irish celebrations going on. And allegedly, um, Dad uh, was maybe had his drink spiked or had uh, one too many, and um, allegedly uh, started quoting from Playboy of the, Playboy of the Western World wow. uh, rather than The Doctor's Dilemma during the play. Yeah. Um, the curtain was brought down and 
the next morning uh, he was fired and then he didn't play in the West End for another 20 years. So it was very, very devastating uh, to his career. I mean, it was tough, I think, uh, if I'm honest. Um, there was an element of stereotyping mm-hmm. an Irish actor yeah. uh, with a drink. And I, I think if it had been somebody else, if it had been John Gielgud who took over from him, I think John Gielgud would have been given a stern talking to and and would have continued in the role. So it was tough, very tough. I, I mean, a lesson learned. Um, but, uh, you know, a huge penalty, really. And I, I think it hurt him a lot. So it definitely affected his work in the theatre, but it made him more successful in Hollywood. His his career flourished elsewhere and he ended up going to Hollywood and, and spending a number of years in Hollywood making numerous movies, which then funded um, what his passion was, which was making theatre. And he came back and effectively set up what he'd been doing as a child, set up a, a touring company with my mum, Maureen Cusack, who was also an actress, and Siobhan McKenna, and extraordinary luminary actors from Ireland. And they travelled around the country uh, performing some of the great Irish plays from the Irish canon. I, th- I found that kind of amazing about the story that he obviously had this Hollywood career, but he was, he basically used it to fund theatre, which was his first love, wasn't it? Um, Absolutely. But the movies yeah. are very yeah, yeah. memorable, aren't they? Because there's lots of things made in this era that you'd often be... For, but he happens to be in a lot of the, the the famous movies people remember, The Day of the Jackal, for instance. Yeah, and, uh, well, he said something... Uh, I remember saying it to him saying it to one of my sisters, which is, there's no such thing as a small part, only a small actor. In other words, you can make something wonderful out of a single scene or two scenes. And you look at some of his movies, and Day of the Jackal is a perfect example. It's a very small scene, but it's so memorable, and he's so wonderful in it. And similarly, he did a, a wonderful movie called The Spy Who Came In From The Cold yes. with uh, Richard Burton, which is also, there's a lovely clip of it uh, in the documentary. And it, it, it's just the detail that he, he gives, which is, is so impressive. Mm. And Brian Redden, who's... who's idea was to make the documentary and who's produced it has just captured um, elements of that dotted all the way through the the documentary which for me anyway makes it so engaging and so fascinating and just gives you a hint of his craft and his skill Incredible actor. And The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is still regarded as one of the the great film versions of a John le Carre novel even today and it's it's on my Christmas list to watch this year. I have a clip actually from The Day of the Jackal and uh, this is his cameo appearance, great. and it's just, it's a lovely turn. Over what range will you fire? I'm not sure yet, but probably not more than 400 feet. Will the gentleman be moving? Stationary. Will you go for a head shot or a chest shot? Probably head. And what about the chances of a second shot? I might get the chance, but I doubt it. In any event, I'll need a silencer to escape. Well, in that case, you better have explosive bullets. Yes, I can prepare a handful for you along with the gun. Glycerine or mercury? Oh, mercury, I think. It's much cleaner. More Campari? No, thank you. <laughs> More Campari? <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. You're the youngest of um, his first family, Pork, isn't that right? That's right. I'm number five. There's six of us in all, and Kata, my youngest sister, is um, her mum. Uh, he married um, after my mum died. You were a young man um, when your mum died. I, I yes, I was. I, I was still at school, so I, I was fourteen. Um, so it was yeah, it was a, a, a difficult time. But luckily, coming from a biggish family, 
um, probably small by Irish standards, but by the rest of the world, big, bigish with six of us. Yeah. I had plenty of support from, from my wonderful siblings. And your older siblings, they talk in the talk about spending their years in Hollywood, but you didn't. But you lived in Rome for a time, didn't you? We did. Yeah, yeah. They, they got Hollywood, we got Rome. Um, and Rome was wonderful. Dad was doing a series of movies um, there with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And, and he, he spoke Italian, so he then went on and made some other movies in Italian, Galileo, Sacco and Vanzetti. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, I mean, I was young. And I suppose when you're a youngster, you treat everything as fairly normal. Um, it's only latterly that you realise, oh my God, I had such a wonderful opportunity and, and how special was that. But it was l- lovely living in Rome and we were right in the centre near the Piazza Novona, so it was I- idyllic really. And, um, you know, I-, I had the best time, so a, a lucky child. Really. Yeah. And you're speaking of languages there, Torgel Galifa Agav, all of you, uh, the Cusacks, have a, a beautiful Irish and it was something he was very passionate about. Well, Gormila Mahagat, yes, he was. Um, I think Irish, you know, when he came to Ireland aged six, six or seven, I think, I mean, he felt slightly displaced and he was leading this fairly peripatetic life going from town to town every every week. Mm. And I think he needed to somehow ground himself in something. And I think that something was the Irish language and the Irish culture. And he oh, became yeah. just so passionate about it and... Uh, you know, latterly, um, in, in the 40s, he and my mum and a few other families in, in Dublin set up a school, Skull Lockhorn, out in Monkstown. Yeah, very well-known uh, school. Kind of, yeah, still yeah, going. Yeah, and still going, still yeah. going strong. Um, but, you know, I just think his his passion for the language and, and that importance of, of the Irish literature, Irish music, all of that, um, really figured strongly. And he, he wrote in Irish himself poetry and plays. Um, so, yeah, it was... It was a bit, It became a big part of who he was. And Cyril starred in the first Irish language film, Putin. Putin, that's right. <laughs> yes, and he was so proud of that. You know, it it wasn't a blockbuster. You know, but um, it meant such a, a huge amount to be part of that. And I, I don't know whether it's true, but I gather he sort of begged to be in it. And so. Uh, <laughs> You know, it was good news. It was great. Yeah, and Neil Tobin starring opposite him in, in Poutine. Um, it's a That's gorgeous right. Thing. A lot of people would remember him as Uncle Peter in Glen Row, something that he may not be too pleased about. Well, you know, Glen Row was, it was towards the end of his career, so he was getting on. And the folks at RTE actually treated him like royalty. So, you know, there were cars to pick him up. They organised his lunch, you know. So it was real cosseting. And, you know, he was working with actors who he'd worked with over the years many, many times. So it was very comfortable, very familiar. It had a nice storyline. And I think only when he realised how big Glenrow was and how popular it was right across the nation and that he was becoming... Uncle Peter, rather than Cyril Cusack, the esteemed stage and screen <laughs> actor, and and young, a sort of a young generation thinking that's all he is, that he's Uncle Peter. Uh, and I think he, he just wanted to make sure that people knew he'd done other stuff as well. Yeah. But um, but it, it was a, a lovely um, episode in his life, um, and I think he enjoyed it a lot. And, and that, that was just... The, the tiny shadow Freud um, that perhaps um, people had forgotten all the other wonderful work that he'd done. And even as he gets into his late 70s, early 80s, he's still working away. He appeared on My Left Foot. He did. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he worked 
almost up to the bitter end until he became ill with motor neurons disease. Um, and uh, the first thing that was affected was his voice mu- muscle, um, which you know seemed very cruel, very ironic for an actor to lose his voice um, so early on in in that particular disease. Um, so I, I, I think he, I think the last thing he did was at the beginning of '93, and he died um, at the towards the end of '93. So I mean, thankfully, it was a short illness because I think he would would have said himself his career defined him um you know th- that came first and we as a family much as he loved us we actually came second and i think he felt my mum's job um was to bring up the family and his job was is to make a career and earn the living and uh, and support us in that way and there's a great discussion in the documentary particularly around your sisters who obviously went into the acting trade and his kind of attitude towards their chosen profession and uh, uh, tell us tell us about that well i mean i, I think you know the whole you know yourself you, you've acted you, that process in the rehearsal room where you sort of strip yourself bare and um share ideas that sometimes are very very personal yeah. Um, and to be doing that not only with your siblings but also with your dad, uh, I think is quite challenging. And um, I think he couldn't treat them as equal actors. He kept on reverting to them as his children. And uh, on one occasion, Niamh on stage did something that he didn't like, and completely out of character, he he effectively shouted at her and said, Niamh, Niamh. <laughs> In the middle of the and, play. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a big shock to her. And also, yeah. I, I think she thought, Dad, that's unprofessional. You're not supposed to do that. So I, I think there was a, a tense couple of weeks. Um, I mean, obviously they got over it. But uh, yeah, I, I think they weren't natural bedfellows when it was, when it was doing a show yeah. together. I think they could admire each other afar. And also, I think the other thing was, Dad was a terrible upstager, which means that he, he draws the attention to himself even when the attention should be on someone else. Poor Cusack talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And to the sad and difficult news of the death of 23-year-old Private Sean Rooney and injured trooper Shane Carney. Brian O'Connell was reporting for Today with Claire Byrne from Killa East Cork. Now, while communities in Donegal and Dundalk came to terms with the tragic news from the Lebanon yesterday, in Killa and East Cork last night, a prayer service was held in the local church for seriously injured Trooper Shane Carney. Trooper Carney joined the Defence Forces in October of 2018 and his home unit is in Collins Barracks, Cork. Well, our reporter Brian O'Connell was in Killa for much of yesterday and attended that service last night. Brian, the people you met there, they're still struggling of Obviously and understandably to come to terms with what has happened. Yes, as you can imagine, Claire, the village in Killa and the wider community of East Cork, they're stunned with shock. Uh, Shane and his family were deeply embedded in the local community. His father, Paddy, is a well-known GA referee and along with his mother, Phil, and his sister, Amy, they live just a few hundred yards from the main street in Killa. Shane attended primary school at one end of that street and he spent a lot of time in the GA field locally where hurling in particular was his passion. He remains, as you said, 
died in a serious but stable condition at the UN-run Hamoud Hospital following emergency surgery. And the people of Killa last night, they came together for this prayer service in the St. John the Baptist Church, led by local priest Father Tim Hazelwood. And Father Tim has known Shane since he was in primary school. And I have to say it was hugely poignant to see dozens of colleagues from Carlin's Barracks in Cork, many from Shane's 1st Brigade Cavalry Squadron, Many of them were ashen-faced. Uh, some escorted family members of Shane's from outside into the church, which was packed to side aisles, the balcony all packed with hundreds of people showing their support for the family. Commandant Claire Mortimer represented on Taoiseach Michal Martin, while Minister of State Mary Butler represented government and local TD James O'Connor also attended. And on the way into, service, into the service last night, I spoke with some of those who simply wanted to be there in uh, to, to show their support to the Kearney family, beginning with these Defence Forces veterans from the organisation of National Ex-Servicemen based in Cove. Michael Heron, uh, retired sergeant from the PDF. You served in Lebanon? Four trips, four tours of duty. How did you feel when you when you heard the news uh, this morning? Um, very sad. It's very sad for anybody to lose their life, but especially in, in their overseas. We're here tonight to show respect and wish Shane a speedy recovery, if possible. Our thoughts with the family of the poor soul that passed away, you know, the whole country is in grief. There's no doubt about it. Especially his comrades and those have served in the Defence Forces, both at home and overseas. And I know with yourself in the Defence Forces after you retire, that community, the comradeship, it remains, doesn't it? And I'm sure Shane's family will feel that. Oh, absolutely. Every member that have served, both present and past, We'll always remember those that have lost their lives. Mm-hmm. This is why we commemorate our falling comrades. And in terms of our of our work in Lebanon over the years, we've played a hugely important role, haven't we? Oh, as for peacekeeping, yes. I mean, the, the Irish soldier as a soldier out there is well respected in the general community. I came to give support to the family of their sixth son and also for the boy that died. Did you know the family? Oh, yeah, I did. I'm a neighbour. Don't see it coming. My friend's son was out there. He only came home during the summer. He was in Lebanon. So you're going in now to the church? I'm going in now service. to support the family and also to pray for the family. Their son has died. A huge shock locally. Mm, absolutely. I have a son over there at the moment. He's uh, very shook up about it too. He's upset and, you know, he's just taking care of others over there. He's had excellent training. He has all his bodies around him. and I never worried. No, he's been overseas lots of times. So you're here tonight to give support? Yes, yes, because, you know, no one knows it could be my fellow or somebody else, you know. You don't think it's going to happen, you see. That's yeah. the thing. You think, you know, if they know what they're doing and you don't expect them to, this to have to come to them, you know. But please God, this boy will be fine. And how's your son today? He's shook. He's shook up. He's, he's taking care of others there. It's, it's his job. And, you know, he, one of the fellows that was in the other car, is in his unit. So he's taking care of him. And they're all taking care of each other, really. So the prayer service began at half past seven last night in St. John the Baptist Church in Killa. And the Kearney family sat in the front row at the top of the church. To the right were rows of serving members of the Defence Forces, some of whom lit candles as the service began, as did Shane's father, Pawdy. And at times you could hear Father Tim Hazelwood's voice breaking with emotion. Uh, the Rooney family and those who were injured were prayed for. Two of Shane's favourite songs, Caledonia and Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, were played at the end of the rosary. And as you'll hear in this 
this short clip from the service. We offer our prayers for Shane, but things are tough and we need help. God is by our side, and that's our prayer. It's a service of hope, and I invite all you to be forward where we light a candle of hope as we pray. Loving God, we hold in your love Private Sean Mooney, who lost his life working for peace. May his gentle soul rest in peace. Lord, hear us. Loving God, we hold in your healing presence all peacekeepers who bravely represent us in areas of conflict. Bless them and keep them safe. Lord, hear us. O'Connell reporting from Killa East Cork and then Claire spoke to Father Pascal Hanrahan, head chaplain to the Defence Forces. Well we hear the great support there in Cork for Shane's family and I suppose what we see is that the worst of times bring out, brings out the best in people doesn't it? No absolutely and may I from the outset on behalf of the Defence Forces Chaplaincy Service extend my sympathies to the family of Private Sean Rooney and assure them of our continued prayers at this time and indeed to the family of Shane Carney as we continue to pray that he makes um, uh, uh, recovers from the injuries that he sustained and yes over the last um, 36 hours has been a a profound and uh, incredible outpouring of support um, for for the defence forces and the personnel who have been caught up in this uh, uh, tragic uh, incident in in, in the Lebanon and the impact of his uh, death and the injuries to Shane, that's being felt across uh, this very tight community in the Defence Forces so acutely. Absolutely. As so many people have said, uh, including your previous uh, interview there, uh, the Defence Forces is, is a very tight family. Whilst we might be dispersed across the country in various locations, um, we, 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 we are connected with, with a tremendous uh, common bond of, of service and, and sacrifice. And uh, there's an incredible tradition of family service within the Defence Forces. And indeed, uh, Private uh, Sean Rooney's um, uh, comes from um, uh, an, an incredible military family with, with uncles still serving um, in Aiken Barracks, Dundalk. And that is replicated across the de- Defence Forces. Talk to me a little so we bit. all do indeed feel these uh, events tremendously uh, yeah. uh, acutely, as you say. Uh, and just the role of, of the chaplain, you and your fellow chaplains, I know you play an, a vitally important role in the Defence Forces, but it's a role that people might not know much about, Father Hanrahan. Can you explain that role to us and the support that you're offering at this time? OK, I suppose at its most uh, basic, Claire, um, our role is about presence. It's about being available and visible to all personnel, uh, their families, and indeed um, those who have served uh, in the veteran community. Um, and uh, I suppose uh, when it comes to uh, a tragedy like we we, we just have had, um, our, our, our response is broken down into three areas. I mean, there's the immediate, the now and the next. And if I may say, the immediate uh, response once news of the tragic event uh, 
came to us, uh, the chaplain on the ground, that we, we, we have a chaplain um, with, with, with all of our overseas missions, so that, that chaplain uh, attended um, the, uh, the, the, the hospital where Private uh, Sean Rooney was and, and, and would have offered prayers there and support to his uh, colleagues in the immediate aftermath. Um, he, he, he then went to, to the hospital where uh, Private Shane Carney and his colleagues were and uh, spent some time there. And it would be very much a uh, ministry of presence listening and, and and supporting and um, where where possible, you know, just just offering that that hope that we heard of as well in your previous uh, interview. Also here at home and the home front, uh, you know, chaplains were dispatched at in uh, alongside the notifi- notifying officer uh, to uh, Private Sean Rooney's um, and family, and would have spent time there um, with with the family in the aftermath of hearing that. Dreadful news, uh, uh, um, and and I know that last night, for example, in Killa, Father Ted Sheehan, who's chaplain of Collins Barracks, um, was there with the with the troops, and he spent uh, some time with the family, offering uh, uh, support uh, as well. And uh, in Dundalk, uh, the, the chaplain that's currently assigned to Dundalk is actually deployed overseas to Undock in Syria at the moment. So we've stood up a chaplain uh, from here uh, in Dublin to, to support the personnel at Aiken Barracks. So that's the, the now uh, part with about being visible and present uh, to people as to what to share stories and experiences and reminiscence of Private Sean Rooney. And the next thing, I suppose, uh, part of it will be preparing for the rituals, and the rituals will take place across the, the country and overseas, uh, remembrance uh, uh, rituals, and uh, we'll, we here uh, are also preparing for the repatriation of uh, Private Sean Rooney. Uh, so we're um, very much involved in the in the planning of the um uh, with ceremonial and that of the, of the religious aspects of, of those um, ceremonies. Father Pascal Hanrahan from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Anya called Joe about Dublin bus cancellations. I'm very obsessed with Dublin bus. Um, would I be able to say a quick thing? Yeah. Uh, would I be able to just say um, Merry Christmas to everyone? But could I just ask everyone to look out for their elderly neighbour, ah, yeah. a friend, but not about age, someone on their own. Yeah, you know. okay. Good well, point well made. Go back to Dublin bus, what happened? So yesterday, um, my daughter, she takes the 54A from uh, Karen Uritatala. In Dublin, yeah. She's a student there, year three. Yeah. This has been going on for a year where her bus just gets cancelled at two minutes notice. So we've gotten through it. Some people have real problems. I just kept saying to her all year, look, wait for the next one. You're not living too far away. Just offer it up to God. So this has been going on all year, the 54A. Okay. Extremely popular bus going from one side of the city to the other and catering for many yeah. vulnerable people. Now, who uses Dublin bus students? Older people who can't drive. People who are nervous of driving. People who simply cannot afford the luxury of a car. People who don't want people who might have a car like myself and don't want to drive most well, of the time. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so it's a, so it's a great it's it's a really important service and we're told that it's become more important post 
post-COVID. So what happened? The bus, how long was the bus missing for? So my daughter was due back and she texted me. They're after cancelling again, Mum. Okay. So she rings me crying. I said, look, when is the next half an hour? I said, will you just offer it up? Okay. So she stays there for half an hour. After 30 minutes, she calls me. Mum, they've cancelled the replacement. I said, Sam? Yeah. Just come up now. The one thirty minutes late is not coming. But she said, Mum, I'm in a terrible state. I said, why? She said, there's an elderly woman here. I said, what? She's freezing. Freezing. That cold yesterday. How old is she? And my daughter said, elderly. I said, what? Right, I said, hail out a cab. What, Mum? She said, you're nuts. I said, never mind, I'm nuts. Get a cab or not. What do you mean? Ask the woman to get in. I don't care if she lives in Wicklow. I'll find the money. We'll drop her home. Get a you taxi. Take... You say, get a taxi, you'll pay. Yeah. Okay. On my hand, God. I had this vision of the woman. And my daughter was crying over the woman, saying she'd been there now. She'd no other choice to get back wherever she lived. And how long has the bus been missing? Your line is a bit grubby. And how long is a fuzzy? How long is how long has the bus been missing at this stage? An hour, an hour and a half? An hour at this stage. Wow. So I saw red and I rang up the NTA. Yeah. The poor lady who answered. I said, Hello, can I speak to your CEO? She's like, Sir. Yeah, Anne Graham, please. She's like, Oh you she won't come on the phone. I said, Why not? Who are you? I said, Who are you? <laughs> I'm the receptionist. I'm the receptionist. I said, Well, I'm the Egypt that tries to avail of your service, but it's never okay. there. <clears throat> so she said, Oh, it's not us, it's Dublin bus. Okay, thanks, love. Not your fault. Bang, lovely girl in Dublin bus now, absolutely dangerous. Hi, love, I said, I'm right. Why? Can you put me on to your CEO? What? Huh. Yeah. No. Why? Well, who are you? I said, well, who are you? You're Dublin bus. I want to speak to the boss. There's a certain trend here. Go ahead, yes. So. They have a new oh, boss in Dublin bus, haven't they? I have no clue, but whoever so, yeah. it is, he should be also ashamed of himself. Then I said to her, can I ask you a question, love? Yeah. Uh, can, your bus, can your boss drive a bus? She said, what? Can your boss drive a bus? And she says, I, I doubt it. She said, He's the CEO. I said, he can't drive a bus. Is that not like going into Starbucks and asking for a coffee and your man says, I've never been trained as a barista? Yeah, but what, what, what's, what's, what's your point about the CEO, Ray Kine, driving a bus? I think Ray came up from, from the ground, so to speak, so he might be able to drive a bus. But anyway... Um, well, if he was able to drive a bus, he should I know, Ray, I think uh, Ray, is, Ray is gone because I Ray used to oh. retweet Liveline stuff and Bears Advice um, yeah. When is he going? When is anyway? We'll try and find out the new chief executive of Dublin anyway. Bus. It was Ray Coyne and Ray did come from the ground floor up, and he was uh, he, he was uh, much loved in the organisation as well. Now, and he, he trans, trans, No, don't just not nothing. I try and get the name of the new chap. I think well, it is. It's a, a new chap. It's, it's, it's a new chap. I think. Well, Anne, Anne, Anne. Billy Graham, Han. Graham. Billy Han. Billy and Anne, would you do me a favour, lads? You do look. Their job isn't easy. Of course, it's not. Running the company of this size, and they're taking on a legacy of, of problems. But now he's only been Billy has only been in the job fifteen days. Oh bless him! <laughs> so back to the bus stop and that elderly lady waiting for over an hour in the cold. Now yeah. my daughter was frozen, but the woman. And anyway, listen to this. It's a very important point, young people. I said to my daughter, please, Mum. She said, I can't say to the secretary, get into the taxi. We're driving you home. My mum's paying. She'll think I'm nuts. Now. Yeah. When I was 20, no woman, old or man, elderly, would have said I was nuts. They would have thanked me. I would have dropped them home. What's happened to us as a country and nation? When a 20-year-old girl, a beautiful girl, with the utmost respect for anyone, she was, was too afraid to offer that woman my gift. 
She was no. she was too afraid. To to upset the woman. Oh, in case okay, in case it was taken up the wrong way or whatever. Yeah, yeah the yeah. woman could have thought she was a whack job, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, where, where, where is the woman? Where is that, as you call her, the elderly woman now? Is she home She's safe? She's now at the bus stop at 1 hour 10, right? When my daughter said, oh, it's after coming up, there'll be one here in 20 minutes. While the girl in Dublin bus and fair play to her came back to me and said, there'll be one there in 20 minutes. My daughter said a 26 came along. Don't have a clue where that goes. But the woman got on it in desperation. Okay, should the, the older lady get on it? And what did your daughter do? Waited for the bus. I collected her off the bus stop. She got in and she was blue. And she started complaining. I said, oh, would you cop on? You're young and look, at your nose is a bit cold. Mm. But look, at what about the woman? She said, mum, I was nearly crying. Now, this other woman approached my daughter while she was on, at the bus for an hour and ten minutes. And this other woman had a lot of issues. She was trying to talk to my daughter about her issues. My daughter was very, very upset when she got home. OK, now, did you, did you get any information from the NTA, our Dublin bus, and what happened to Phantom, the ghost buses. There seems to be well, a lot of them. The thing is, the girl in, in Dublin bus was an exemplary woman, a lovely young woman, very good at her job. And I had given out to her, I had to apologise. When I rang, I had smoke coming out my ears. But it was Billy, what's his name I wanted, but he couldn't be found, because he's only there 15 days, God love him. Yeah, but he's running, uh, Willie Han, uh, Billy Han. Willie, he, Billy, what's his name? running 1,200 buses. God love him, but did he apply for the job, did he? Yeah, of course. It was a recruitment process. Of course, you have to apply. Oh, he applied for the job to run 1,200 buses? Okay, so you were saying, what's, what's gone wrong? Now, I think earlier on in the week, I, I'm trying to sort out all my different doll committees, because I'm mainly in the decision. I think he was up before one of the doll committees, and he said the timetabling stuff is back. There was lots of complaints we were getting, but he said the timetabling stuff is 98% fixed. This poor man is taken over. He's only there 15 days. I couldn't respect him more. But unfortunately, he's the boss. Okay. So now, is this, now a re- is this a recording experience? It's been happening every day for a year on my dad's memory. Every okay. day. Okay, on your dad's memory. Okay, okay. And then you swear on your dad's memory. That's the phrase you're using. Uh, from the NTA statement, the, the National N- Transport Authority who own everything now, run everything, taxis, buses, Lewis, they're in charge of everything, sorry, they're a government agency, well funded. Dublin bus might be better, pl- this is their response, Dublin bus might be better place to respond to operational specifics relating to services on a particular day. Mm-hmm. Now, they then go on, that's one line out of the statement, the statement is an A4 page. Right. The rest of it is congratulating themselves about investing in bus connects, um, an increase in the services. They're buying, I didn't know this, sorry, you and I are buying 800 new electric buses for use by Dublin Bus and other operators. Uh, there's going to be a new F spine. I, I don't know about you, but I find, I was on a bus yesterday evening and I saw a bus in front of me, H4 or N4. I hadn't a clue where it was going. Wow. hadn't a clue where it came from. and It was in service. Uh, where it's going, but anyway, there's a new uh, F spine coming to join the. the uh, there'll be a D spine and an A wow. spine, and uh, there'll be 39 new enhanced routes outside of Dublin. So th- the rest of their statement is just saying wow. how brilliant they are. And Anya talking to Joe in the afternoon. And in the morning, artist Lou Casserly was recreating the aromas of the Midlands in studio with Oliver Callan. Sitting across from me is a young artist 
And um, Luke Casserly is his name. Good morning to you, Luke Casserly. Hi, Oliver. Uh, can you create and bottle the scent of an Irish bogland is the big question. Yeah. Uh, that is the question. And yes, <laughs> yes is the answer. And why would you be doing it? Uh, why would you be bottling the, the smell of an Irish bogland? Luke yeah. Casserly? So the project I'm making is called Distillation. Mm-hmm. And I made it in response to the place where I'm from is called Lanesboro in County Longford. Um, so I live next to a bog and grew up there. Yeah. And um, I wanted to make a project which shared that landscape with an audience. And so I approached a perfume maker from West Cork, uh, whose name is Joan Woods, uh, about creating a unique distillation of that place to share with an audience as a starting point for a performance lecture um, through scent. Very good. Yeah. And it was an, it's an artist thing. You're, you're, tell us what you do. Yeah, I'm a performance maker. So I make work which uh, connects um, audiences with physical landscapes uh, through an environmental lens. Um, That's a really nice description of it, isn't it? Because we're, we're almost trying to, uh, you can't quite taste art, but you can you yeah, figure out a yeah, way that yeah. we could smell it. Yeah, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, so it's been a really interesting process because um, Joan came to to the site in Longford uh, and we kind of walked on the landscape together and collected different botanicals um, and kind of pinpointed a scent that was exact and precise um, from our journeys there. And then Joan um, translated that um, into a scent. So what we have now is kind of a first draft of that essence, okay. uh, which we're sharing as part of the To Be Irish initiative, um, which is run by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Before I come to smell the, yeah. the bog, can you tell us what uh, To Be Irish is all about? Yeah, so To Be Irish is um, uh, an initiative which is designed to kind of create meaningful connections around the world with the Irish diaspora. So it's like an online catalogue of events. Um, cultural projects and businesses as well, which connects people with, yeah, experiences um, of Irishness at a time when a lot of people can't get home for Christmas. Yeah. So this is my third year working with um, the initiative um, and I've kind of created a trilogy of work over the last three years, which is attempting to connect um, virtual audiences with landscapes. So all good things coming out of those lockdown periods. Yeah. Uh, this is an yeah, initiative of the sure. Department of Foreign Affairs. So it is very much for the diaspora, isn't it? And giving the totally. kind of um, the idea or the kind of nostalgic vibes of Ireland, isn't it, from afar? Yeah. So so there, there are actually quite a few perfume makers around Ireland, aren't they? I was reading about um, huge exports. Mm. Are you, when you, when you brought Joan... Uh, to your 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 local bog in Longford, <laughs> you know what kind of smell are you right, trying to recreate? You know what I mean? Are you trying to create yeah. something new that that, or is it something that's familiar to you and to those who live there? Yeah, well, it was a really interesting experience because we kind of like got our noses in when we went there, yeah. and the things that we smelled were insane, Oliver. Like we we were walking around and we smelled like coconut at one moment, really, because the yeah, because the gorse flower smells really intensely it of does. coconut, yeah, and then we walked a little bit further. Um, and we found these kind of uh, the things that grow there are incredible and it's re- a really unique biodiverse habitat and it's a really interesting place because the project was also made in response to the peat harvesting industry kind of closing down in 2020 yeah. and the sort of environmental potential of that landscape now and what it's going to become. But we smelled other things like um, we smelled heather, we sm- a lot of lemon and citrus. Um, which was quite interesting. And and beetroot was the really big one. Beetroot? You know? Yeah, there was one point where me and Joan were literally, we had our faces planted into the bog. <laughs> <laughs> um, to try it's and a normal day, get the smell. Face yeah. down in a bog and love. Yeah. So what we have at this point is kind of a first draft of that. Um, and the comp- we're still kind of working on the, the final composition, which will um, 
Yeah, which will kind of culminate next year at some point. So you've brought in a little vial. It looks like a kind of a perfume sample that you yes, get in the yes, department yes. shop. So I'm going to like, let you um, sample it. <laughs> you tell us. Um, and you can let me know where you go. You tell us how you've made this. So give us an, an idea. What am I going to do with it, by the way? I'm spraying it. You can spray it onto a piece of paper. Do you, know, do you, or you see can the way the dry creams kind of spray it in the air and walk into yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll spray it on this piece of paper. Yeah, tell yeah. us then what I should be getting or how you've made this. Well, I'll, I'll let you. Wow, Okay. <laughs> I'll let you tell me. It, look, it looks really <laughs> like whiskey. Okay. Well, it does have that sort of like... Um, it's Turflands. Turflands mm. is what I'm getting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, don't, yeah. you don't seem to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's still like... That's totally it. What, um, we, we did a work in progress Nutty, of it a few weeks ago. Nutty, toffee, Turflands of Longford. <laughs> <That's lovely. laughs> does that make sense? I love that. That's very nice, Jason. Yeah, I'd it's... I'd um, that. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because whenever when whenever anybody smells it, it brings them somewhere very very different each time. Um, so it's kind of interesting the associations that people have. Like I've had people say it's brought them to their grandmother's bedroom, or it's brought them to Croatia, or it's brought them to a field in in Cork. So it's kind of really interesting that this um, distillation of the Midlands has so many associations with. So many different landscapes. Luke Catterley talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on the live line, power outages. Brian called Joe from Cavan. The power went off at um, 10 o'clock and didn't come back on again until 5 in the afternoon. Wow. And what day was this, Brian? It was on Wednesday. Which was, which was Baltic, freezing. It was, yes. And, and, and they, they weren't working on the, on the cables. So I managed to... Uh, one of the fellas came uh, tapping at the door. Well, he, he just tapped at the door. Yeah, OK. And he was walking away by the time I got there. And I said, what do you want? He said, we're, going, we're putting the power off just to trim some trees. Yeah. I said, well, that, that's ridiculous. I've only got the boiler there to keep me warm. And I'm 83 and suffer with angina and... And, and prostate cancer, and I said, I've got to keep warm. Oh, God. OK. And he just shrugged his shoulders and walked away. But is that the only notice you got, Brian? Um, well, I, I, might have got, I might have got a card probably yeah. a month before, but he probably got mixed up with a load of, uh, you know, the advertising that comes through the door. <laughs> OK. Anyway, um, so you know, I didn't know they were actually going to do it, you know, on the day when they did do it. So, oh, they, so they were... Little, uh, but you okay. When, oh, so, so what do you have in the house? Uh, that's all the 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 oil central heating and a small wood burner. So well, how did you manage during that day, Wednesday? Yeah, I know. I managed to get the the wood burner going. I had, I had a few logs just okay, outside the door man, and, yeah. a, and a few brickets, and I managed to get that uh, going. And um, of course, you know, I thought, what am I going to do to heat? You know, something warm. So I took the top off a tin of um, soup and sat that on the top of the wood burner. And after about half an hour, it warmed up enough to uh, to eat it. You put a can of soup on your on your wood burning stove. Yeah, took the top off. Yeah. Wow. And then after that, I thought, I wonder if it's hot enough to fry a couple of rashes. So I put a couple of rashes on it, and it did. After eventually, for about twenty minutes, it did fry. So I managed to get a baking sandwich. God, you sound like Bear Grylls. That was it. It was, it was like going back a hundred years. And when did the electric come back on? Five o'clock. 
And when you said to you see when you said to that chap, um I said to him, well, could you not leave it until the cold spell is over? They never never answered me. Because they were cutting trees. And well do you see the, 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 the DSB have sent us in a statement, Barley Hill area of County Cavan, Wednesday. This was necessary to enable timber cutting work to be carried out that will enhance continuity of supply during the winter months. All customers, including you, Brian, I presume, they say were notified in advance of this taking place. ESB Networks yeah. apologise to all customers. Uh, but it's not, it's not a very good policy to do it in yeah, the middle exactly. of a, a really cold smell that we've never had for years. And it seems that they've no flexibility. Well, they, they, you think they would be for just trimming trees. It's different if a cable came down. Yeah, but they're saying trees in the long term can interfere with cables. Yeah. But anyway, how are you, are you back to normal now, Brian? Um, yes, yeah, just about, yeah. And how are you managing? What What did you say your challenges were? Angina and prostate cancer? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. And how often do you attend hospital? Or? Um, Sorry? How often do you have to attend hospital, do you mind me asking? Well, if it wasn't for Navin Hospital, I, I wouldn't be alive now. For Navin, OK. Yeah, because when I took the heart attack in uh, Christmas uh, 2019, um, they rushed me straight down to Navin Hospital, and then they, they rushed me down to the matter and they put a, a, a stent in. Wow. So, so, and it's the downgrading of Navin Hospital which is happening as we speak. Is that, will that affect you, Brian? Oh, yeah, yeah, bad. I've had to go in quite a few times when the blood pressure gets out of control. Uh, I go in and uh, they, they sort me out. And uh, the doctor, the doctor Irwin, he was, he was a great, great fellow. Okay. Yeah, okay. they do a very good job there. Well, that's Brian on the live line with Joe Duffy. Now, is it just your imagination or are sweets disappearing from your Christmas favourites? Let's get the stats from the Irish Sweet Survey, a.k.a. Elaine Horan. Uh, it could be argued that one of the most important surveys of the year has been undertaken by my next guest. Elaine Horan has been carrying out the Irish Sweet Survey for all of us. She's been carefully watching and examining all of the tubs of Roses, Quality Street, Cadbury's Heroes and Celebrations and following what pattern of chocolates are filling the tubs this year. Hello, Elaine. Hi, Ray. How are you? What do you like to be referred to as? Um, a sweet nerd, sweet geeks, sweet persons, sweet yeah, spot. A sweet counter in my spare time. A sweet counter, yeah, your sweet, sweet counter. counter. Yeah. What a job! I what know, a job! I know. And you're self appointed. Yeah, if only I got paid. Yeah. How, how did the obsession, no, sorry, how did the hobby, <laughs> how, did the, how did it begin? Um, I think it was in 2013 I counted my first tin or tub and um, from then on I obviously noticed some discrepancies so I thought it was an area for research. So I've good, I've about seven years worth of research from 2016 till now, 2022 of in-depth research of all the tins and tubs. Right, and you come from a scientific background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it changes from year to year, and we've had a number Definitely. of uh, confectionery controversies over the years. Mm. Some of them make the papers, don't they? Yeah. People are very um, 
informed, well informed, and, and and they get very exercised by the changes over the years. Yeah. What happened? What happened this year? For example, did anything major oh, happen this year? I suppose. Well, in the UK, they were getting rid of the bounty out of oh, some of yes, the tins, and yes. that hasn't happened here. Right. And from the surveys I've done, bounty is quite popular in Ireland. So hopefully that stays in the tins here. Okay. Um, there's no sign of it going yet. Anyway. Now we have four. Uh, laid out in front of us here it's, yep. it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful vista to behold here uh, so we have take us from the right to left they're the what? So you've your quality street okay. or inequality street sometimes <laughs> some may say um, you've your miniature heroes or miniature disappointments you have your roses don't know what to say about them sometimes roses are weeds yeah. and then you have your um, celebrations or commiserations but generally celebrations okay. are quite good uh, and these are the four most popular sweet selections in Ireland yeah who yeah. would be top normally or does it vary year to year well from doing some research myself the people's favourite is generally celebrations right. and they actually come out on top with the number of sweets and the less decrease per year of sweet okay. year now, on year now, now how can the number of sweets decrease when the weight is always the same well the weight is the same this year. Right. Um, now, that was like a new area for research for me from last year. So I haven't been keeping a track of the weight since, we'll say, 2016. But we'll say this year, um, all the tins have 600, except for celebrations, which have 650. So that's an 8.5% increase right. in chocolate. So, so sometimes the weight may be the same, but the number of sweets might be different. Definitely, yeah. How does that happen? Um, well, I presume that the weights, that's another area for research, of the roses and maybe the miniature heroes are larger than a celebration suite. I see, because yes. there's a yes. lot more celebrations per uh-huh. tin. Yeah. Just, just on a personal note, get away from the science for a moment, what's mm. your favourite of all that's in front of you there? Like one suite? Yeah, one suite. I know it's I'd difficult. I'd say Maltesers out of celebrations. Right, they'd be yeah. your favourite. Yeah. Okay. Why yeah. don't you just buy yourself a packet of Maltesers then? Uh, uh, to be honest, I'd eat any of them if they were left. <laughs> right. Okay, the average price of... So you what have, if you have your club card and all that and you're going yeah. to one of the bigger um, retail stores, they're about four euro. Four euro per the plastic tub, tub right. we call it. Now the tin, tin yes. if you've seen them, they're 10 euro in the shops. They say 15 reduced to 10, um, something like that. Now they are two and a half times the price if you do your maths, but you are only getting, let's see, in Quality Street, you're only getting 45% more sweets. Elaine Horan from The Ray Darcy Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.